Hey, let's, uh, we're going to jump back into the, uh, the book of Habakkuk this morning. So if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you um, heard Asher speak on Habakkuk 1. We took actually two weeks off. We looked at one of our um, values, the value of being recreational. And then last week, Kelly brought the house down um, with a, uh, a sermon on pain and walking with a limp. Um, but we're going to get back into the book of Habakkuk today, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2. So you can turn there if you want. Because we've taken a couple of weeks off, I want to give a brief overview of what happened in chapter 1, just so we, uh, we're all um, together on this. Chapter 1 begins, um, really, in verse 2, with Habakkuk lodging a formal complaint to God. His complaint is that God has been unresponsive to his cries against the oppression of the Babylonians for a long time. And essentially he's saying, God, where have you been? Why are you not listening to the cries of my heart? And God answers in verses 5 through 11 by saying that surely he is working out justice, that he is a God of justice, that justice will be served, but in a unique way that he is using the Babylonians as a tool to judge and bring justice on Israel. And so he's saying, listen, justice will be served, but you need to know that this is all part of my plan, that I'm using the Babylonians to train and to teach the Israelites because you guys have not been following in my ways. Well, Habakkuk doesn't really like this idea. Verses 12 through 17, he again responds to God's answer and he begins to question God's tactics in doing this. The tactics of using a pagan nation, a wicked nation to judge God's people to judge the Israelites. He says that, I'm not so sure that I actually like this plan, God. This doesn't seem maybe like you thought through this all the way to the end. And that brings us into chapter 2. And the whole book of Habakkuk really is kind of this dialogue, this conversation in between Habakkuk, the prophet, and God. And the first two verses are a question and an answer, a question and an answer. I'm sorry, the first two chapters are that way. In the third chapter, which we'll look at next week, you guys will see, I, I won't uh, spill the beans too early on that. But it really is this dialogue, this conversation between God and Habakkuk. Brings us into chapter 2, which we're looking at today. It's about 20 verses long. We're not going to read the whole thing because there's a lot in there. We're going to focus on a couple of uh, keys. But let me give you, again, a brief overview of what happens in chapter 2. 19 of the 20 verses is God's response, again, to Habakkuk. The response to Habakkuk's question of, are you sure that this is the right way to do this? Are you sure you really want to use the Babylonians to judge your own people, the Israelites? And so, first God instructs Habakkuk to receive and record the word that he is about to give. And then he invites Habakkuk into trusting his plan. He says, chill out, trust what I am doing. And he says, just as Israel will be judged... The Babylonians will be judged in their due time as well. And they will receive punishment for their evil, for their wicked, for the cruelty that they've shown, not only to the Israelites, but to people beyond. And then he ends this, uh, this whole chapter with five woes. Um, and they, they are kind of like two or three verses long, each one. Their five woes are five warnings to the Babylonians. And here's what they are. God says, woe to those who allow greed to control their lives. Woe to those who secure national gain through the oppression and injustice towards others. Woe to those who are cruel. Woe to those who lead others into perverse action 
and woe to those who worship idols. So he lays out these five warnings in the end again to assure Habakkuk that yes, justice will be served. Even though you may not think that I've thought through the plan, I really have thought through this plan. So let's look at two main ideas. And as I read this, as I studied this this last couple of weeks, two things came to mind. First is a principle of faith, and the second is a movement for our lives. And the first one is this idea of a principle, and here it is. This entire book implies that God embraces our questions. That God honors our questions. Let's have a moment of transparency here this morning. How many people have actually felt like they've had the ability to ask questions freely of God? Okay, some of us. So let's flip it the other way. How many people have felt like they don't really have the ability to ask any question of God? They felt stymied in their process of asking questions. Has anybody felt that way before? Okay, a few of us. Maybe in your pain, in your suffering, in your worry, you almost feel as though it's wrong to question God. I found this cartoon the other day, and let me explain it if you can't read it. Essentially what it is is a series of question marks, and on the sign it says, please do not feed the questions. I think this is actually somewhat true in Christendom. I think we've been taught, maybe not overtly, but we've learned that when we have questions, when we begin to question God, we need to push those things deep, and we can't let those out. That questions will lead to a place where we don't want to go, that it becomes a slippery slope. And so as Christians, as followers of Jesus, I think sometimes we hold our questions back. We don't feel the freedom to ask those questions. But here's the truth. God can handle our questions. Just like he could handle Habakkuk's questions. And I've actually come to believe that it's more important to be a question asker than it is to be a statement maker. There's a fundamental difference in those two things. Now granted, we live in a culture that I think values statements more than questions. We value answers more than questions. And that's certainly true within our Christian culture. We uphold with high esteem those people that seem to have the answers. Those people that seem to not need to ask questions. I think part of it is because when you ask questions, you're no longer in control. You're freely admitting that you don't know everything. And so we have this little phrase, knowledge is power, and I think oftentimes we operate under that assumption that having questions is a sign of weakness, and yet having answers is a sign of strength. And so we hold those people up with high esteem. We've placed an intrinsic value on statements and answers, and we elevate those people. And yet, interestingly, the Bible seems to highlight the people that ask questions. Think about this. Throughout the Psalms, there are many different questions, honest and transparent questions. We could go through an entire study in the book of Psalms specific to that, but chapter 13 says this, 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? That's an incredibly honest and transparent question that the psalmist writes. Jacob wrestles with God. Again, this idea of questioning. He begins to wrestle with God. Moses questions whether God chose the right guy. Are you sure, God, that you want me to do this? Am I really the right guy? The book of Job is an entire dialogue filled with questions. Job's friends seem to be pretty proficient and in, actually in the business of making statements, of coming up with answers. And yet Job continues to wrestle with God, continuing to ask questions of, why is this happening to me? But I will hold on to my faith. Jesus in the garden asked some questions. Is there another way, God? Is there a way you could take this cup from me? But if you can't, if this is it, then your will be done. Habakkuk asks these, and these are just questions in the first chapter. He says this, and these, this is uh, kind of all the questions put into one paragraph. How long, O Lord, will you not hear me? Are you not everlasting? Why do you look upon those who do wicked with favor? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler? I think it's really interesting that the heroes of our faith, the people that we read, around, read about in the Holy Scriptures, asked questions of God. Again, some think when we ask questions, our faith is in doubt, our faith is faltering, that we're backsliding. But Scripture seems to indicate something different. Scripture seems to indi indicate that asking questions can actually lead you deeper into your faith. Dallas Willard says this, uh, kind of in a, res in a uh, response to a question that he was asked about his role as a teacher. He says, we must listen carefully to those we teach. We encourage every question, and we make it clear that dealing honestly with questions that come up is the only path to a robust and healthy faith. We will never poo-poo difficulties or take any problem with anything less than utter seriousness or direct the slightest reproach or shame on anyone for having questions and doubts. When we don't honestly know what to say at the time, we will just say so. We will go away and find an answer through study, conversation, and prayer. Dallas Willard, this incredibly brilliant philosopher, theologian, recognizes the importance of questions and to deal with them honestly. I really think questions do drive us deeper into the heart of God. I think when we humbly and vulnerably ask questions, that can actually be a sign, a picture of deep and beautiful faith. Habakkuk models this in verse 1 of chapter 2. I said the, the kind of the 19 of the 20 verses are God's response, but that first verse in chapter 2, Habakkuk says this. After he's just questioned God's plan, he says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me, referring to God, and how I may reply when I am reproved. 
He says, God, I don't totally know what you're doing, and frankly, I don't even really agree with it. There might be a better way, but I will wait for your answer. I will hold on to my faith in the midst of this. I don't understand your ways, and I may even question, but I will not be moved in my faith. Which leads in to the second thing that I learned reading this. And this becomes a movement for our lives. And here's what it is. Faith is what sets us apart. The Bible defines faith in the book of Hebrews as this. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now many of us probably know that verse. We've probably memorized that verse at some level. And I think many of us intellectually know that's true, but how many people find it actually hard to have faith? How many people find it hard to exercise that faith daily? We can read these things and we can say, oh yeah, I totally get it. But when the rubber meets the road, sometimes our lives show a different picture. You see, faith is a complex thing. It's complex because as followers of Christ, I think we've all struggled at points to live a life of faith, and yet, faith is such a vital part of our everyday life. Think about it this way. When you came in here this morning, you chose a seat. Did any of you think about the structural integrity of the chair you sat in? This guy did up here. I like that. (laughs) One person. (laughs) No, we don't, because we just have faith when we sit down, the chair is going to hold us. I didn't see anybody flip the chair over and make sure that the screws were all in there tight. I didn't see anybody kind of examine the chair and and pull on the legs and say, okay, this all looks comfortable, and now that I have assured myself that this chair is good, I can sit down in it. No, we just had faith. We exercised that little amount of faith in the chair we sat at. Think about this. How many people, before they go out to work early in the morning or to the store, wherever you're going in your car, How many people get underneath the car and check the brakes? Give the brakes a little once-over. Make sure the pads are all good. No, you just get in your car, you start going, and you just have faith when you press on those brakes, they're going to work. Again, a way that we exercise faith. How about this one? Does somebody have a dollar bill out there? Nobody does. (laughs) Nobody uses cash anymore. This is a terrible illustration. Okay, hold up the dollar bill. I don't, I don't need it, just hold it up. How much is that worth? <laughs> He's holding two dollar bills in his defense. One. Worth one dollar, right? But really, when you think about it, how much is that worth? I mean, it's a, it's a you know, one and a half inch by four inch or whatever piece of paper with some ink on it. A couple of cents. But when we spend that, we're exercising faith in our government. The dollar's not actually really worth all that much, and yet, because the government says, hey, that's worth a dollar, and it's backed by gold, or maybe it's not anymore, I'm sure it's not anymore, (laughs) we just say, hey, this is worth a dollar, and so I'm going to buy my coffee with it. It's an exercise of faith. You're pretty sure the chair will hold you. You're convicted of its structural integrity without ever even checking it. And so we exercise faith in these little ways all day long. And honestly, if we didn't exercise faith in those ways, 
we would be paralyzed. Just like if we don't exercise true faith in the way that we follow Jesus Christ, I believe we become paralyzed. There's this weird kind of subconscious belief, I think, that we needed faith in the onset. To truly trust Jesus that first time, there needed to be faith. But then from then on out, we don't need faith anymore. We can handle it ourselves. And yet scripture seems very clear that faith is not just the entry point, but it's the very substance by which we live. It's not solely the entry point into following Jesus, but it's the very substance by which we live our entire lives chasing after him. Hebrews 11 says this, and without faith it is impossible to please God. So faith is not just something we exercise once when we first begin to follow, but it becomes the very fabric, the very substance by which we live. Now obviously this this doesn't mean that we don't struggle with it. I think we all struggle with this idea. I think Habakkuk struggled with this. And yet even amidst his questions, he says, I will steadfastly wait for an answer. And God responds in chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, by first instructing Habakkuk to record the message that he is about to receive. And he says, this will become a promise and a comfort for all of God's people that they can trust in my plan, that they can trust in my purposes, that these things will come to fruition in their due time. And then God makes this statement in verse 4, and this really is the central statement of the entire chapter. He says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Again in Galatians 3, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. And in Hebrews 10, for you have no need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For the righteous will live by his faith. That half of a verse should speak volumes into our lives. This isn't only the central verse of this chapter, but it's really the central verse of this entire book. And just as Paul and the author of Hebrews knew the importance of this and used it to remind the early Christians of their need to live by faith, I think God responds to Habakkuk in the same way and says, remember, live by faith. We struggle with faith because it militates against our very nature to be in control. You see, the very essence of faith 
is the releasing of control. It's saying, I control nothing. And I will allow God to control everything. It's trusting and allowing God to work on his terms. Oswald Chambers, who many of you may have um, seen his devotional, which is great, he says this, Faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. You see, again, like so many things in our Christian culture, we say we're good at giving up control, and we use all of the right lingo. And we say, I just have faith, or I'm just trusting that this is going to happen. But when it really comes down to the wire, aren't we usually the ones scrambling to make things happen? Usually the ones that are panicked and frantic at the end of the day, not really trusting if God is going to make it happen. Parker Palmer refers to this idea as functional atheism. And I've used this before up here. It was probably about a year ago, but I think this speaks so well to this idea. Palmer says this, that functional atheism is the belief that ultimate responsibility for everything rests within us. It's the belief that ultimate responsibility for everything rests in us. So functionally, we begin to operate as atheists, that God actually doesn't have control because we don't actually really trust, we don't actually really have faith in the fact that he will see his plans through. Again, we say all the right things, but ultimately we think it rests on us, and so we look just the same as everyone else at the end of the day. If our lives don't look different in this way, if we don't really show faith in a beautiful and unique way, then you have to ask yourself the question, do I really have faith in Christ and his atoning work on on the cross on my behalf? And when things get tough, if we begin to look for ways out, then are we really known as people with deep faith? C.S. Lewis says this, Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Habakkuk's mood was driving him to question God's plan, and yet he holds fast to his faith. And next week we'll see where it takes them. And here's a little spoiler alert. It involves praise and worship and a deeper faith. Now, obviously, this is much easier said than done. But we all have faith in something. We exercised it this morning by sitting in the chairs that you're sitting in right now. But beyond those little things, what is your faith in? Is your faith in your bank account or your 401k? Is your faith in a national identity or the things that maybe being an American provides you? Is your faith maybe just in this church? Or is your faith in your own good works? 
Is your faith in your own abilities? Is it in your spouse or your kids or your friends? Or is your faith in Jesus Christ and his redemptive kingdom? I think we have to ask ourselves, are we like the Babylonians who put their faith in greed, who put their faith in their ability to amass great wealth, who put their faith in the idols that they worshipped? Or are we like Habakkuk, wrestling with God earnestly, holding on to faith and living in that way? Not always getting God's plan, but trusting and having faith that it is his plan and that he will work to see his desired purposes come to fruition. And before you give the easy answer to that, before you just say, well, of course I'm not like the Babylonians, look at me. Really, is the substance of your life faith? Is the very substance of your life faith in Jesus Christ? It's easy to say that we trust God and have faith in Him, but I think oftentimes our lives show otherwise. I think oftentimes our lives, at the end of the day, don't look all that much different than everybody else's life. And yet we're reminded in Scripture in so many ways of our need to live by faith. Listen, look at uh, just this little list here that I put together in a couple of moments. Ephesians 2, we are saved by faith. Romans 4, we receive righteousness by faith. Romans 5, we are justified in Christ by faith. Romans 5, we have access to God's grace by faith. 2 Corinthians, we stand firm in our belief by faith. Galatians 3, we receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. 1 Timothy 1, we do good God's work by faith. Galatians 5, we wait for the return of Christ by faith. And again, Romans 1, Habakkuk 2, we live by faith. The truth is, is if we were truly to be followers of Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom and mission, then faith has to be the substance of our lives. Because it's only by faith that we can even see his kingdom. It's only by faith that we can understand our role as being a sent people, as being missionaries for God. And it's only by faith that we can actually be on mission with Jesus. And so faith becomes this critical element. So how do we actually do this? I think first we remember that every day we exercise faith in the little things. And that that can be transferred into exercising faith in the way that we live our lives. I think part of it is stop, stopping going through the motions of the Christian life. To put an end to just showing up at church and singing the same songs because everybody else is around us singing them. Taking communion because everybody else around us, around us gets in that line. Putting our money in the basket because that's just kind of what everybody does and you, you don't want somebody to see you not put money in the basket. It's actually putting an end to just going through the motions. Knowing that we worship in faith that the testimonies we heard this morning were about worshiping in faith, in community. That we give sacrificially. 
because we're instructed to give and we, we have faith and trust that God will meet our needs even amidst our giving. That we receive communion in remembrance and in faith of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. These all mean things. These are deeply spiritual and significant and faithful elements of our Christian life. I think part of it is remembering that the cross was enough, but then living by it as if it were true. I think part of it is having faith in the resurrection and the life that it truly affords us, and then again, living in it as if it were true. Living as a resurrected people. I think part of it is reading the teachings of Jesus not as simple suggestions, but as commandments from our God, and then living them out. I think part of it is knowing and seeing the kingdom of God and then living a life surrendered for it. Let me end with this quote. This comes from one of my favorite authors, uh, David James Duncan. And he says this, The heart is an organ that I find, if you have faith and know how to surrender to it, unfolds and unfolds in a most wonderful and unscientific manner till it becomes the vastest and most pristine wilderness in existence. The heart is an organ that I find, if you have faith and know how to surrender to it, unfolds and unfolds in a most wonderful and unscientific manner till it becomes the vastest and most pristine wilderness in existence. If you have faith and know how to surrender to it. We all have faith in something, but maybe it's time that we surrender our faith to Jesus. We begin to live as the faith is the very substance of our lives. Because when faith is the substance of our lives, then I believe our hearts will have the capacity to captivate the world for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.